The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. It's nice to have you back. Yes. You were ill last week, right? I was. Thank you for <coughs> well, covering I'm... for me. I appreciate it. Well, I did the best I could. Uh, I'm sure people were praying for you to get you back as yes. soon as possible. And yes. Thank thanks you for the prayers. Yeah, thank you. Okay, well, Father, we have uh, some emails that we'd like to start with before we discuss some current events. And uh, the first one is in regards to the, uh, to the catechism series that we have posted on the website um, where you went through a brief catechism for adults. And um, in one of those episodes, a uh, viewer had a question pertaining to that. She said that you mentioned a Catholic couple might be able to practice natural family planning if they have a propensity for having children who are mentally or physically impaired. She says, this sounds to me a bit like eugenics. I'm sure that wasn't your intention, Father, but could you please explain why this could be an acceptable reason for a Catholic couple to practice natural family planning? There's really no relationship between eugenics and this. Uh, Pope Pius Twelfth was the one who said that if a couple has given life and they find that they have a propensity for bringing life into the world that is somehow impaired, even at a time, he said this, when it was not well understood, you know, the uh, biology behind it, but uh, it was known to happen. <clears throat> and so he said that could be a reason for them to practice natural family planning. Okay, that means they would avoid, you know, having marital relations uh, when they could conceive a child. That's a very different thing uh, from saying, well, we have a child, and the child's impaired, let's kill the child. That's a very different thing from that. So they're, they're just really totally, totally different questions here. Obviously, if the life is there already, and the, the life is somehow impaired, uh, physically or mentally, uh, you cannot take the life of the child. The life of the child still is a child, and still is a human being, and still has uh, the, the right, God-given right to a, the life that God gave it. Um, but that's a very different thing that a, for a, a couple to actually abstain from uh, their marital rights <clears throat> for the sake of, you know, avoiding seizing a child who would be impaired. That's mm -hmm. not taking a life away. Yeah. Um, it's a matter of abstinence, and Pope Pius XII said that at times that it can be justified yep. to do that. That's all. So. Yeah. All right. Thank you for that, Father. Um, next question, we have a scenario here I'd like to read to you. This viewer says, uh, two baptized Catholics marry in the Catholic Church and subsequently divorce. But after many years, one of the spouses realizes that the divorce occurred due to immaturity and for frivolous reasons. The spouse takes responsibility, seeks to apologize, and contacts the other spouse. They have many conversations and would like to renew their marriage. However, the second spouse has remained in a civil marriage. What is the path for these two people to get back together and to resume their Catholic marriage? 
Just says as an aside, both Nova Sordo families of these two individuals are warning that the breakup of the second marriage, the civil marriage, would be a grave sin. Okay, so the idea is that a uh, couple married, right? Yeah. Divorced for frivolous, childish reasons, right? Mm-hmm. And evidently they both have come to realize that they divorced because of that, uh, and they realized that they were truly married. And uh, one of them went in and got civilly married in the meantime, and uh, now the question is, uh, really, how do they get back together again? Because one of them has another family. Yeah. And they're being told by their Novus Ordo clergyman <clears throat> that it would be wrong to break up the second family now, right? See, this is just uh, the Novus Ordo. It's the new order. And uh, the, the complete moral depravity of the Novus Ordo. Um, the question is, I mean, is, is the... Uh, is the divorced spouse married to this other person, um, the second person? And uh, is that is it before just the peace? And the answer is no. The Catholic Church says absolutely not, that uh, the divorce should not have happened in the first place, that all this time the two of them, the first husband and wife, have been validly married to each other, and uh, that one of them has been living in open adultery with another person, and uh, whoever that other person was, uh, you know, whether that person is culpable or not, the fact is <clears throat> that they would have known that this person they married civilly had been married as a Catholic before, and that the Church does not accept that as a valid, uh, as a valid marriage, because the person already has a living husband. And so uh, the the true husband and the, should, the, the true wife should actually, what they must do, morally speaking, is to reunite. That has been their obligation all along. The fact that one of them went off and tried a, a, a civil marriage and lived in adultery can never make that right. It's gravely immoral. It's a mortal sin. Souls will go to hell for it. And... Um, one might say, well, what about the children who are born in adultery? You know, shouldn't we go ahead and pretend for their sakes that all is well? And the answer is no. Why? Because, again, the, the couple have given a great scandal by uh, pretending that they can do this morally and, and that the second so-called marriage is a marriage at all. And so, actually, it's in the interest of the children, too, to make it very clear to them, look, what was done was wrong. It is a scandal, and we don't want you growing up to think that that's okay to do that, okay? The Catholic Church's teaching on marriage is the truth. This is what God wants of us, and that's what we have to do. This is the best example that both of them can set right now. And, um, I mean, let's face it. If, if the man or the woman could go off and find somebody else and unite with them, and uh, now now they're being told by the Nova Sorta clergy, okay, you have a true marriage, you broke it up, <clears throat> one of you went off and committed adultery with another and is still living in open adultery for each other, but let's just let that go, continue on in that situation, that evil situation. Um, that is very evil advice. And um, the fact is, yes, there certainly will be consequences, but the fact is that there already are consequences, and there are already evil consequences, and you're trying to rectify them. You're trying to bring it back to uh, 
God's law, to follow God's law. And that's the best example you can set right now, okay. is to restore what was right and good, what you should have been doing all this time. That's what you need, by the grace of God, to get back to. And uh, if, if there certainly are ways that you can mitigate the ill effects on other people, I mean, the innocent people, if, let's say the people, if there are children, this person doesn't say so, born of this so-called second marriage, if they're children, then, um, there are things, steps that they can take to make sure their children are provided for. But the worst thing for all the souls involved, and I mean all of them, is that they, uh, this open adultery uh, continue, and, uh, and the scandal continue, and finally uh, the ultimate result would be, uh, you know, the judgment seat of God judging the adultery and condemning those who, who uh, not only perpetrated it in the first place, but perpetuated it, right? Including the clergy who are advising this. Mm -hmm. Okay, wow. Thank you, Father. Um, next question, this viewer asks about your opinion on penalties for abortion recipients and providers. Uh, he references a recent article which states that the uh, United States Catholic Conference of Bishops has come out opposing any sort of penalties for people who have abortions. Um, so I just asked Father, what is your thought on this? Should there be any penalties imposed for someone who has an abortion, anyone who participates well, in abortion? Well, yes. Uh, the Church's law says that anyone who directly participates in abortion and makes it possible, right, because of their contribution somehow, whatever they do, that includes the doctor and the woman, of course, who brings the child to the executioner to be executed. It includes the person who pays for the abortion and so on and so forth. They're all excommunicated from the church. Right? And uh, this would include the woman, certainly, as the principal. After all, she's the one who conceived the child and wants it killed. Uh, and it can't be killed without her cooperation. Right? So uh, she may be subject to pressures. But contrary to those pressures, she's a mother, right? she has a baby, right? I mean, there are women who will risk their lives to save their babies. This is the normal, natural thing for a mother to do. <clears throat> so no matter how much pressure a woman may suffer uh, from influences in her, on her life to abort that baby, her obligation is to protect that baby as the baby's mother, right? And it is totally unnatural and anti-natural for her to not only seek the baby's death, but also to succumb to pressures from others who want the baby dead. If she has a spouse or a boyfriend who's pressuring her into putting the baby to death, is that an excuse for her to go ahead and do it? Say, well, my boyfriend pressured me into killing my baby, so I did. <clears throat> you know, take that to a court of law for a, a woman who has a little child, born an infant, and the boyfriend kills the child, and the mother is colluding in that. that you know, what do we do in a case like that? Do we excuse the mother for her part in the killing of the child? Absolutely not. So why, why would we do this before a child is born? And uh, the mother's collusion in the, in the death of a child, no matter what pressure may be brought to bear on her, mm -hmm. when her natural obligation before God is to protect the child's life. So no, uh, the women also need to be held accountable for giving that life and then being the principal agent in deciding the child's death, determining the child's death, calling for the child's death. Um, because of all the people involved, they're the one person, ultimately, who could stop this entirely and say, no, you're not going to kill my baby. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't do that. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yes, there should be penalties for all those involved. And 
in a moral, in a, in, a, in the sense of moral theology and the responsibility, the woman bears the first responsibility for that child's life. Mm-hmm. And yes, she should, there should be penalties for that. Women should know that. Mm-hmm. Now, modern day bleeding hearts cry bloody murder over this. They say, oh, the woman is the victim. The woman is the victim. But you know something? Um, the fact is that 99.9% of the children so conceived are willingly, uh, the, the, are they are the result of willing co- cooperation of the woman, <laughs> you know, yeah. in the very conception of the child. And so, uh, you know, the, the idea that uh, of all the people involved, the women should have no responsibility because after all, I mean, it's hard being a mom, right? That doesn't fly. It's just, it's morally wrong and it, it's uh, at the root of the problem. That whole mentality is at the very root of the problem. It's, it's a failure to accept or face the fact of what abortion really is. Mm-hmm. The direct murder of an innocent life. <clears throat> and ultimately, at the behest of the mother. It has to be. Just for the sake of argument, Father, what if the, the woman does not fully understand what abortion is? She does not fully understand that it's the taking of a Well, if one decides that, if one, if one can just determine that factor, that's a matter for the courts to decide, okay, this woman did not realize, you know, that she was doing this or she was so terrified, it took away her consent, you know. I mean, the church herself recognizes that to commit a mortal sin, you have to give full consent, right? Church realizes that. In civil law, we also have, you know, pleas that uh, consider that, that fact that a person's cooperation and uh, the, the liberation was impaired by something, right? Mm-hmm. that they were coerced. So even in civil law, we have allowances for that. And yes, it can be. Do you think that's but just to say carte blanche, the mother should have no responsibility for the fact that the baby is put to death, mm-hmm. when ultimately it's, it comes down to her, her decision. Mm-hmm. That, that is wrong. Okay. So I, I am I, I, I'm saying that uh, you know, th- this should be the default, <laughs> that assuming the mother is responsible for the baby coming, you know, being brought into the world in the first place, and being killed. As, and uh, she bears the first responsibility for that. And um, just to, to, you know, basically write that off and say, well, that doesn't count. That is really, uh, it goes to the right to the very root and very heart of how evil abortion is and why it is happening by the thousands and thousands, millions across the world every year. Uh, fails to accept the fact that it is an, a horrible crime before God, and it should be before man, too. What it does is it cheapens the, the human life of everyone, uh, base essentially denies the human soul, uh, created in the image of God, and destined by the likeness of God and grace to have everlasting life. It, abortion is a direct attack on that, on that whole belief, the whole understanding of what human life is worth. And um, if, if the child's womb, if the child's life in the womb is... Uh, is something considered so cheap, then it cheapens every life and it uh, basically leads to all the other evils. All the other evils follow from that premise that abortion is legal or even moral, as some would like to have it. And uh, I mean, we, just recently we had the, uh, the head of the, the Fed, was it? Former or present say that abortion is good for the economy, but certainly good for the pockets of the abortionists, right? It's good for Planned Parenthood, right? Uh, In terms of their bottom line, there's no doubt about it. But you're killing the workforce. 
the idea that it's good for the economy is really sick. I mean, you'd have to be a, uh, a, a dyed-in-the-wool totalitarian atheist to think that that justifies this. I mean, Stalin killed millions of people. Uh, Mao Zedong boasted that millions and millions of people died for the glory of communism. And that's supposed to justify, like, that's okay, you know, because there's an economic benefit from it. You have to be a total Marxist to say that. And then there's somebody else, who was it, who came out recently and said that uh, abortion cuts the crime rate. Well, I guess if you murder, I mean, <clears throat> people, uh, children who are aborted come from families that might well already be in trouble. And they found that there is a, a very high representation among criminals for children who come from broken families, right? <clears throat> so the idea is, well, let's kill the babies of these families and we'll cut down the crime rate. Now, who in his right mind would say such a thing, right? Now, nowadays, I suppose he would say these things. It doesn't mean them in the right mind. They find a lot of people who would agree with them. Say, oh, that's a good argument. Yes, let's kill them first, lest they become criminals. Okay? It's a mortal sin. It makes the person who does it a criminal. It makes the person who does it a murderer in the eyes of God. And it should be in the eyes of the law, too. Uh, very, very few people argue that the... the the child's life in the womb is not a human life. Very few people are left to argue that point. Uh, why? Because it's just so, it's patently obvious now in the light of our scientific uh, um, instrumentation, our, our science, uh, everything we, we know indicates that this is a human life in the womb. So even a very few abortionists are willing to argue that point. As I mentioned in the last video, that's the whole point of their of their terminating the life of the child, you know, because it is a human life. And if that human life is allowed to be born, they will be responsible for it. That's the whole point. They don't want the responsibility. So they, they are compelled in their own minds to destroy that child's life before they're legally responsible for it. And um, so the, the fact is, Tom, I mean, we have a, a monstrous crime uh, being spoken of and almost glorified by the left, notably the Democrats, uh, whose entire power base rests basically on abortion. Let's face it, I mean, of all the issues that, that, that have become the hallmark of, of the Democrats, their power base, their, their go-to go pitch is their, their defense of so-called abortion rights, right? They are upholding abortion rights. Um, their entire, uh, uh, let's say, claim to... Uh, over over the voters of America, are, is that they're appealing to their their uh, willingness to accept and to hold on to these so-called abortion rights? So, abort Democrat, the Democratic Party is the party of abortion, and uh, they glory in it, they wallow in it, and um, as Saint Paul says, they glory in their, what they should be ashamed of. Right? They applaud it even uh, in the New York State Legislature, applauding themselves for voting abortion up to the moment of birth. Right? They applaud themselves for that. Yeah. Well, I fear they'll all be applauding themselves in hell. You know, I'm sure the devil is in hell applauded them too for that. Yeah. Uh, but what kind, of, what kind of depravity, what kind of a perverted individual would applaud that? Would applaud themselves for it? You know? Would boast of it? It's incredible, just incredible. But yes, we've come to that here in the United States of America, 2022. We've come to that. 
So uh, we'll see, hopefully the Supreme Court will begin to uh, try to make amends for the travesty that was Roe versus Wade. And uh, even as a matter of law, let alone morality, we'll see. But you see how the abortionists howl like possessed, howl like the possessed at the idea of having their abortion rights rescinded, as it were, right, on the federal level. And um, how, how they're also claiming that if those uh, so-called abortion rights are taken away on the federal level, this en endangers all the other rights that they so-called gained in the years following. Rights of every, every perversion under the sun. It all goes back to that. That human life is reduced to simply a commodity. Nothing more. Father, do you think um, all of this happening with the, the potential of Roe versus Wade being overturned, do you think that that is uh, the result of prayer? That's There's no doubt about it. I mean, there, there are graces at work right now. Um, and the, it's, it has to be the result of prayer. I mean, we keep telling people, you've got to pray. We've got to pray about this. We've got to pray as we've never prayed before. We've got to assiduously storm the heavens. This is what our Lord has told us, told us right, about our prayer to heaven uh, is the key. Um, the graces need to be there, and we see that there are graces there. We see that very, very clearly now. That should just um, uh, give us more and more confidence in prayer when we see graces at work here, not step back and say, wait a minute, that's, I never expected that good thing to happen, right? I thought it was always lost, and now... I've been praying, and I see others are praying, and I see the unexpected. I mean, some, some weak need justice or judge is actually taking a stand on something uh, for morality, you know, and, and is standing against the, the withering blast of the rage of hell, you know. And that has to be the, the, the work of divine grace. So, you know, that should make us pick up our arms and run, run to the battle, you know, pick up our rosaries and start praying. With greater fervor than ever. Yep. That's Our Lady's way of saying, I hear you. you know, God hears you. Very good. Thank you, Father. Um, another email we've uh, had since Holy Week that I wanted to uh, get to. is viewer asked if the changes to Holy Week from Pius XII in 1955, uh, if those are really a restoration to previous times. Also, how long were the ceremonies prior to 1955 in place? Ceremony. Well, I don't know how long the ceremonies prior to 1955 were in place. I mean, the traditional ceremonies that developed over time. Yeah. Talking about the Roman Rite here. Um, I mean, one could examine that. One could go and look up the resources and find the answer to that question. Was the 1955 uh, restoration of the Holy Week Rite, was that really a restoration? Um, you have to remember, the modernists were behind it. The, 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 the committee, basically, they call it the, the committee... Uh, to change the liturgy was established under Pope Pius XII. One can say by Pope Pius XII, but Pope Pius XII had already condemned the idea of archaeologism in the liturgy, that is, trying to restore the primitive liturgy. He already said that was a mistake. Then in 1949, lo and behold, this commission is established and um, proceeds to work. The modernists said, if we can change the rites of Holy Week, especially the uh, Triduum of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, because of how sacred they are and how ancient they are, if we can change those, they said, then we can change everything. So let's start there. 
And that's what they did. And so in 1955, they, 54-55, they proceeded to produce this, uh, the rights of Holy Week restored, so-called. Was it actually a restoration? Well, uh, you know, you'd have to look in the back in the history of the church to say, well, where, where did this come from, you know? And um, let's, let's say this, okay? Let's say that um, you could take all of the changes that they made um, from the previous Holy Week ceremonies, which is what we offer here, okay, to the restored so-called Rite of Holy Week uh, that they produced in 1955. Let's say you could account for all of them. Let's say you could trace them back to some Catholic practice in the past. Again, Pope Pius XII condemned the idea of re re resurrecting all of those things. Why? Because the liturgy and the worship of the Church actually does... Uh, it is a work of the church that goes on from time, you know, throughout the centuries. It's the work of the Holy Ghost, right? Um, Pope Pius the Pope Pius the Fifth actually um, gave us quo primum, and he he published the Roman Missal that he wanted to be used everywhere throughout the world, where there had been a rite of mass that had been sort of cobbled together by the Protestants, the modernists of the time. Uh, over the previous 200 years. So his effort was to get rid of the new, the modern, and restore the traditional. But there were certain things he did. Uh, for example, in the traditional Mass, we have the last Gospel. I understand that that was not universally practiced before Pius, the, Pius V, but it was in the Roman Missal of St. Pius V. And we have other things too. For example, the the preface of um, the Sacred Heart, okay? I don't think you'd find that preface in the Missal as it was published at the time of Quo Primum. But it was perfectly in line with the traditional Catholic practice. And yes, the Church indeed had, had used that, but the Church wanted to emphasize that devotion to the Sacred Heart. Now, she has a feast of the Sacred Heart. <clears throat> and so there was a great upwelling of devotion to the Sacred Heart at that time, and the Church expressed that. By that, uh, by that preface of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. <clears throat> uh, the preface of Christ the King, too, the kingship of Christ. It was not necessarily in the Missal in 1570. But there were things that were added uh, organically, as you might say, by the Church uh, to express her traditional piety and believe her traditional Catholic beliefs. The trouble with the 1955 so-called restoration of Holy Week is that it was a, a bald, bald modernist exercise in what we'd call uh, just basically archaeologism, saying we're going to restore how things were done in the past. And the, the, the ethos behind it, and this is the problem, see, with all of these modernist changes, even the most innocent appearing changes were based upon principles. And the principle of the modernists was basically the same as the principle of the Protestants, that the liturgy had become corrupted, and the traditional mass that we had was corrupted by time. Uh, and so we had to restore traditional, the, tradi the, the primitive, what they call not traditional, but the primitive Christianity, because it wasn't traditional, it hadn't been handed down, they had to go back and resurrect it. They had to go back and kind of recreate it. 
But a lot of this is their own fantasy, what they can cobble together, right, from their research or supposed research. And they cobble this together, not as saying, let's restore the ancient traditions. That was not the point. The point was, let's go back and restore what we can sort of reimagine and recreate as the primitive liturgy, because what we really need to do here is to restore primitive Christianity, which has been lost. So when you have a Martin Luther come along, saying, look, the church, this, this so-called Catholic church, is, is, a, is a false thing, it's a false construct, it went off the rails, it has been adulterating the true message of the gospel all these centuries. I, Martin Luther, have rediscovered the true meaning of Christianity, the true meaning of the scriptures, and I'll tell you what, they, what the true meaning of the scriptures are. So much so that if there's something in the scripture that doesn't agree with me, I will tell you that that scripture is wrong. Okay? That's, that's the point that Martin Luther had gotten to. And that's exactly where the modernists went, saying that not, uh, let's, let's follow Catholic tradition. Let's say Catholic tradition has ruined Christianity, has gotten off in the wrong path, all of us taken us in the wrong direction, not only in terms of faith, but in terms of worship. And so what we have to do is we have to dig around, root around in the past, find the old practices, resurrect them, dust them off, and uh, reinstitute them so that we can reestablish primitive Christianity that went along with these practices, they say. The problem is um, that they had their own agenda. They had their own idea what Christ primitive Christianity should be. And so they already had their own ideas as to what the primitive liturgy should be or should have been. And so all the things that the Holy Ghost had accomplished in the church and all the things that the church had learned from the Holy Ghost during all those centuries that produced the traditional mass were rejected as something bad that kind of led the church down the primrose path away from true Christianity. This was really the message. This is the principle behind all those changes. And when you accept that principle, there's nothing left, right? When you accept that principle, then basically what you've, you've denied the work of the Holy Ghost in real Catholic tradition and said, look, we went wrong somewhere. We've got to go back and try to find the thread again and get back on the path of Christianity again. Which is, for the modernists, whatever they say it is. Whatever they want it to, to be. I'm not sure I'm making it very clear, but I, I'd like to think that you can interpret it what I'm saying into English here. So in answer to the question, uh, I'm sure that those who uh, are responsible for the changes in the Holy Week ceremonies um, and what they call the restoration to restored Holy Week, right? I'm sure that they had plenty of arguments to say, okay, the church used to do this, the church used to do that, the primitive church used to do this and that and the other thing. And uh, we're going to go back to those things. Now, I'm sure they had plenty of arguments to propose for that. I'm just saying that the principle that they invoked in order to make it, they say, necessary to do this was not Catholic at all, quite the contrary. It was very anti-Catholic. And it was based on the modernist principle, which St. Pius X says is the complexus of all, of all heresies, the synthesis of all heresies and the undoing of the faith. Of course, we see the result. We see the result. You know, just, just one thing, okay? Just, just one thing comes to mind about that particular question. It had been the practice of the Catholic Church for about a thousand years at least 
not to administer Holy Communion on Good Friday. <clears throat> that was a very, very telling practice of the Church, not to administer Holy Communion on Good Friday. The idea of being bereft of Christ when we killed by our sinfulness, who is because our sins have cost him his life upon the cross, he was crucified, he, was, he died, and he was buried. Okay, that sense of uh, that sense of loss was very, very important for us to experience on Good Friday. And uh, in the night, the still called Restored Rite of Holy Week. That was changed. It created quite a stir. You can go back to the news reports back in the 1950s when they said, well, we're going to now have a communion service. We're not going to have the, the traditional mass of the pre-sanctified, but we're going to have a communion service for everyone to come and receive. That was enormously controversial back then in the middle 1950s. And of course, the question was, well, where is there really precedent in the church for this? We know the church's liturgical position and liturgical practice was to say no. And it was well, not only well documented, I mean, Catholics who lived before 1955 could testify this was the universal practice. And those who, you know, had been Catholics for, you know, 60, 70, 80 years would testify, well, it was always this way in their lifetime. And as far as they know, it was always this time in the history of the church. <laughs> The church had a reason for that prescription. So let's say you have uh, like so-called traditional Catholics who are now following the new so-called restored rite of Holy Week, and they have the communion service uh, instead of the Mass of the Pre-Sanctified, and that dates back to 1955, okay? But they say they're traditional, but are they really? I mean, what principles are they going by? The modernists are the ones who claimed to be the author of these changes. The modernists actually claimed this restored rite of Holy Week for themselves, saying this was our great triumph. And on the basis of this, we have done everything else, right? All the other changes um, have followed upon that and been built upon that change. And yet you have traditional Catholic, so-called clergy, who are following that and yet, and yet claiming to be traditional. And you ask, well, what, what right do you have to claim to be traditional? What are the principles you're following? Do you follow any principles? Do you just say, well, we're going to accept so many changes of the modernists and we're going to reject others, and on what basis? You know, on the basis of your personal like or dislike for them? Uh, what, what is popular with the people? Well, there's a modernist principle right there. So you just betrayed yourself as a modernist. And that is why the Society of St. Pius V followed the, the old the ancient rites of Holy Week, because they realize that the commission to change the liturgy to, uh, let's say, primitivize or archaeologize the liturgy um, was the work of modernists from beginning to end, the entire process. And we're not going to uh, try to legitimize their process by ad adopting any of their practices, any of their changes. I think that is a sensible thing to do. Yeah. Uh, and I think St. Pius X himself would say that is the Catholic thing to do, since he said that modernism is the synthesis of all heresies. And he did not want any of it in the Church. You read Pacendi, his encyclical in 1907, 
It's a long encyclical. The last third of it is about practical measures he put in place to prevent modernists from having any influence in the church. If they had been followed, the history uh, of our times would be very different. But they weren't followed. Subsequent popes did not adhere to them closely. And so, and Pope Pius X knew, he knew in advance that that would happen, but he made the best pontifical effort he could to put things in place to prevent the modernists uh, from uh, seizing control. Um, and those uh, so-called traditional Catholic clergy who have accepted these, even the early changes of the modernists, have also accepted their principles. And they haven't got a leg to stand on with regard to rejecting even the new mass itself. And we find that those who compromise it, those who compromise with the modernist changes in the liturgy, tend to work farther and further and further down the road and accept more and more and more, little by little, over time. It's inevitable. Why? Because they've already legitimized the principles on which all of those changes were made. Mm -hmm. Father, this seems uh, very diabolically clever, almost, this modernist principle you're talking about, just you know, to establish this one um, change, just so you can establish that principle of, of something being changeable. And did we see the same thing with the canon of the Mass, where they, I mean, you have the canon, the unchangeable part of the Mass, and St. Joseph's name, I believe, was inserted into the canon. Um, maybe, do you think along the lines of the same principle, just trying to establish that, that yes, even something that we think is totally unchangeable can be changed? Well, they played at Vatican too. they played upon the devotion of the people to St. Joseph. I mean, you don't like St. Joseph? You're against St. Joseph? How could, how, could you, how could you not want St. Joseph's name in the canon of the Mass? But that was reserved for saints of the New Testament. St. Joseph died before our Lord died on the cross. That was considered the delineating mark, right? Our Lord's sacrificial death on the cross as the Savior, in which he accomplished the redemption of mankind, established the New Testament, okay? Uh, St. Joseph was a patriarch of the Old Testament, the last great patriarch of the Old Testament. We know that. And so the church always make, made it a very that clear distinction. And uh, but the modernists were playing upon the the, the tender hearts and the, and the and the, uh, the great devotion of the Catholic people to Saint Joseph to make that change to get Saint Joseph's name in the canon. But once they did that, they showed, look, we can change that too. There is no more canon of the mass. Canon means standard, right? Now look, we've changed that. Uh, even by something as apparently pious as adding Saint Joseph's name to the canon. And uh, look what happened, look what followed, right? It was like uh, the crack in the dike. They, they, knew that. they knew that too, they knew exactly what they were doing. And, and you know, the funny thing is, uh, not funny ho-ho, but funny sort of, hmm, curious, is that no sooner had they succeeded in doing that that they began working on their, their entire new mass. And the entire new mass makes it optional whether to, to mention any of the saints' names now. I mean. Suddenly, it's not that important to them anymore. After all that hoopla about insisting we have to have St. Joseph's name in the canon, and all of a sudden they get their new mass in place, and now, yeah, the saints are optional now in the, in the new liturgy to mention them. So uh, they, they reveal the hand of their dishonesty for those who are willing to pay attention to them. And, but again, this would not have surprised St. Pius X at all. 
Um, he considered modernists to be just. He said that their their characteristic trait was audacity, and their characteristic vice was pride. <clears throat> and audacity in the sense that there is nothing, nothing of the faith or the Catholic religion that they felt they could not improve if they just applied themselves to making it better. Right. So he said, "What arrogance is there in the modernist mind to think?" Well, you know, you read um, from John the twenty-third on. That's what all the reformers said. You know, we're all, we're going to improve this. We're going to improve the rosary by adding mysteries. Improve the stations by adding uh, stations to the cross. We're going to improve this. And what they do is they say, "Look, there's nothing in Catholic practice that we can't change," and that gets down to there's nothing in Catholic belief we can't change. Because there's an, a vital connection between our worship, our prayer, and our belief, right? And uh, Francis is the, the, you might say, the, the flower of this whole, the foul flower of this whole, <laughs> this whole plant, mm -hmm. right? To uh, bring about the, the new world order. Vatican II really was the great reset in the church. I've said it before, and it's true. People have to realize that. There are people who are very concerned about the, the great reset, which you know, assures us by the year 2030, we will own nothing. It'll all be taken away from us. There will be no private property, but we will be happy. Uh, but we have to realize that that could not be possible. There could not be a great reset in the world. The Marxists could not be boasting about their impending victory <clears throat> were it not for the one thing that they needed to do before they could have their way with the world and its people. And that is they had to get the church out of the way. They had to compromise the church. They had to, to weaken the church because only the Catholic church had the power to withstand them. And we're talking about the powers of hell here. And only the Catholic church, let us say, has the power of Christ himself to withstand the powers of hell. So they knew that. The Masons knew that back in the 1800s. They said they were going to infiltrate the church and they were going to seize control of the papacy. And that with that, they would then assure themselves of the success of the revolution. This is what, we, what they say we're on the verge of. They think they're on the verge of right now. But we know God has other plans. He has a, God has a great reset of his own, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That gets into another question. Uh, Father, if we could, maybe just one more email on um, Holy Week. Uh, if you're sad, I understand the Blessed Sacrament is moved to the altar of repose after Mass on Holy Thursday. But where is the Blessed Sacrament kept on Good Friday and Holy Saturday? Well, there are two hosts consecrated at the Mass of Holy Thursday. Right, you know that. The one host is consumed as at the Mass, as Holy Communion by the priest. The second host priest house is taken in solemn procession to the altar of repose, even as our author says. But then the priest returns to the altar, and during the singing of the of Vespers, he takes the remaining blessed sacrament, that is to say the blessed sacrament that remains in the ciboria in the main altar, where he just offered the Mass, and he carries that to what is called the repository which is a, a place that is completely enclosed. And uh, there, the hosts uh, that remained in the tabernacle after the procession with the, the host to the altar of repose, 
where that host is adored throughout the night, as in the Garden of Gethsemane, the, uh, the hosts that remain in the tabernacle have to be carried away and kept. And they are kept uh, in case of emergency for someone who's dying and needs to receive, and needs to receive uh, viaticum, for example, right? But they are sequestered all this time, and they are brought back to the altar after the Easter vigil ceremonies. Yeah. That's a good question, and most people would not be necessarily be aware of that. Yeah. But those who attended the traditional Holy Week rites, especially uh, on uh, Holy Thursday and Good Friday, <clears throat> would know that after, or would see this happening. Maybe they wouldn't know what's happening exactly, but they would, they could know if they, they researched it, as this person is asking. They would see that after the Mass on Holy Thursday, the priest does go in solemn procession. The incense and... Uh, all under a canopy, even, uh, to a remote loca location, or even to a side altar in the church, and takes the second host consecrated at that Mass to the repository, where it is adored throughout the night. But afterwards, the priest does return to the altar and takes the remaining Blessed Sacrament off to what is called the repository, where it is, remains I don't know, until, until the, the end of the, uh, the treat room. Mm -hmm. okay. Thank you for that, Father. Um, I thought we could just spend a few minutes on a few current events. I know you wanted to touch on one of them was the uh, some of the food shortages we're seeing now. Um, I think all of us have experienced this at some point. Even the last couple of years now, this seems to be building and getting worse. Uh, we're seeing more and more shortages. Stores are out of more and more things, and the items that are there have doubled, mm. <laughs> tripled in, in price. Um, it's been in the news a lot lately about the baby formula shortages. Um, so what, what do you make of all of this, Father? All these it's all part of the plan. You know, I mentioned the Great Reset before. People get kind of tired of hearing it. I do, I know. I'm very tired of hearing it. Uh, but the problem is the World Economic Forum, the Klaus Schwab and his, his group, uh, are really planning this. They're really planning on carrying through with this. And they say they have the technology now to have uh, enough surveillance and control over the population of the world that they can make, they can make it happen. They've got the billionaires of the world uh, behind them, uh, and what they're going to do, they say, is basically um, re create a new kind of capitalism, which is nothing but uh, Marxist-Leninist communism, yeah. right? It's nothing but that. It's it's. Uh, so, but they they want to talk about uh, shareholder as opposed to stakeholder capitalism. It's all a bunch of semantics. I mean, it really comes down to communism. What's they're trying to make it? But there, you see. You have to be careful when you talk about communism, because communism indicates there is no private property. Uh, people have given that up, and they're living in a paradise. This was the, the dream, or you might miss it, the nightmare of Karl Marx. Uh, but the idea that you can somehow create a happy world by taking away all the private property, because private property is the source of all the misery in the world, according to Marx, uh, means you have to have total government. He talks about having a world in which there is no private property and therefore no, no need for any government. So the government itself would wither away in the communist world, the worker's paradise. But in order to, to get to that point, you have to come to the point of total government. So the government can actually take away all the property from everyone. Um, that's a necessary step in the way, on the way to the communist paradise of owning nothing and being happy. 
So their idea is to impose total control and take away all private property. They're making no secret of it now, that that is exactly what their intentions are. But they have to, they have to force compliance from the people. And one of the ways they're going to force compliance to the people is by starving them. Uh, the food shortages are a very, very important part of that program. Now, we've seen this undertaken by, by totalitarians before. We saw it, it practiced by Stalin in the Hodolomor in uh, Ukraine, of all places, uh, the breadbasket of Europe. We see them talking about now the worldwide food shortage being directly, uh, you know, resulting from this so-called this war of, in the uh, Ukraine of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, uh, something that was uh, actually orchestrated uh, by the Western powers, notably by the United States government. Um, and now the necessary consequence, now there's going to be a food shortage. Uh, we hear all kinds of reports about the grain harvest in the Ukraine being negatively impacted by this, and it's going to affect the food shortage throughout the world, especially in the latter half of this year. Uh, we hear that there are already food riots going on in various countries. There already are food riots uh, where people, uh, starving people are attacking the police. We saw the lockdown in Shanghai and the people crying from their balconies, crying out for food. Uh, this is basically just the prelude to what uh, these, um, these maniacs right, want to impose upon the whole world. Um, some years ago, actually, I think the year was 2008, um, a film was produced, a documentary called Food Incorporated. Did you hear about it? Yes. And um, the, um, the filmmaker Robert Kenner was responsible for it. There were some other big names about it. It was directed by Robert Kenner. It was written by Robert Kenner and others. Produced by Robert Kenner. And it's starring as its lead voice, Eric Schlosser. Um, one can, can still obtain copies of that. And it's very educational. Because the point of that film was that the mass food preparation, or the mass food production not only in our country, but in the world, uh, really was controlled by large corporations. These large corporations actually um, were bent on profits and control. One of those large corporations was Monsanto. Nowadays, I guess we'd say that all of these corporations are controlled by BlackRock and Vanguard, two names that have become rather notorious lately, for extensively controlling the other corporations in the world. In fact, we know that they have kind of cross-pollinated because, you know, you look at the boards of directors of all of these major corporations and they're the same people, just in various different recombinants, uh, combining and recombining, but they're all the same people controlling all of this. The idea is that the same handful of people, therefore, through these corporations and these, these parent corporations, Vanguard, Vanguard and, and BlackRock contain something like 98% of the, of, the, of the wealth of the entire world, you know, such that the decisions of the, of the boards of directors and their appointees affect you know, the, the economic well-being of, of 
that much of the population of the world. And uh, now Food Incorporated doesn't necessarily bring all that out. We're seeing more and more of that come to light now. We're also seeing some strange things uh, actually coming to light also that are rather alarming. Um, you know, as a result of the shortage of um, baby food, or uh, what we would call uh, uh, the, uh, the nutrition for children uh, formula, uh, I thought it'd be interesting to check in to see what's in that. What's in the standard baby formula being marketed to the children, not only of America, but the children of the world. That was very interesting. Um, just recently, there were reports that came out about how the changes in the food supply over the last hundred years have done a lot of damage to the human race. And these are all, again, the result of the large corporations making decisions uh, with their chemists and their lawyers, as it were, reformulating the food supply. Uh, what goes into nourishing, nourishing ourselves and our children. And uh, one of the major things uh, that has come up, one of them, there are quite a number of things that they've done to the food supply over the years, is to uh, introduce, well, baby formula itself, you know. I mean, baby formula basically traces its origins back to the late 1800s, uh, as we know it now, baby formula, was they were trying to come up with a formula of nutrients for newborn babies. Of course, they were very primitive. They didn't know much about the nutrition for neurobabies at the time. And uh, there were severe consequences for getting it wrong. But uh, one thing that has come about uh, over the last hundred years or so is the reliance on um, the, these oils, these polyunsaturated fats. And uh, they come from vegetable and seed oils. And uh, these have been introduced into the, into the baby formula also. And these things have done great damage. One can do research right now. One can do research even online with regard to the polyunsaturated fats in these uh, vegetable, vegetable and seed oils. And one can find plenty of information about the downside of these things and what they do in the body, the damage they do. They are very, very readily oxidized. Once they are consumed in the body, still very readily oxidized. And that oxidation can do a lot of damage. We know that already. We've already been talking about you know, antioxidants, how important they are for health. Well, at the same time, they're pushing antioxidants. They're also pushing these vegetable oils, seed oils, which are actually oxidants, and they're pushing that into the body too. It's become ubiquitous. You know, uh, we, we make fun, um, perhaps, of the old school idea of using animal fats as lard and replacing butter. Man, people used to eat that. They used to eat that in place of butter, uh, animal fats. But this was actually much more natural. The introduction of the seed oils and vegetable oils into the human diet is something very modern, and there are a lot of effects a lot of side effects, negative side effects from these oils. It's finding its way into the, into the baby formula too. But, you know, someone pointed out, and they, they basically, uh, I think, established quite well, that it's ironic that now we have a shortage of these uh, baby uh, formulas, uh, this for baby formula food, as it were, um, 
at a time when Bill Gates and some of his friend, uh, billionaire friends have invested heavily in artificial baby food and baby nutrients. And they're heavily invested in this. So this raises the question, well, okay, now is this market going to have to make way for Bill Gates baby food? Is, is this going to be, you know, Bill, Bill Gates formula? You know, is this, is this what now people are going to be relying on? Because the, uh, the, the shelves have been cleared of the standard baby formula that people have known in the past. I don't know. It certainly is kind of ironic, isn't it? Very peculiar. Um, and, and if that were the case, I mean, if we're going to say, okay, now we're going to rely on companies controlled by Bill Gates and his friends to produce the, the formula we give our babies at a time when they're telling us that they want to reduce the population of the world. Yeah. Is that a good idea? <laughs> right? They want to reduce fertility. Uh, they want to reduce the uh, population of, of mankind. They want to even recreate mankind uh, digitally and digitize them. As the great advisor to Klaus Schwab, what's his name? Uh, Harari? Yeah, Harari, what's his name? Uh, Yuval? Yuval Noah Harari, right. Okay. That's his name. And um, so, you know, we've got all these people sending us these very explicit messages. Gates actually speaking very openly about these things for years. And now he's investing in baby formula. I mean, is this what we want to give our babies? I don't know. Uh, I guess it depends on whether you trust, you know. But they have always found that baby formula fails to give nutrition that a mother and a mother's milk can give. That uh, That is no substitute for nursing a child. They call it wet nursing and dry nursing. And wet nursing a child gives the child the mothers, the nutrients that the, only the mother can give. And it also benefits the child by boosting the child's immune system. The formula doesn't, doesn't do that. Can't even begin to claim to do that. Um, they have to add things artificially to the formula, to, you know, vitamins and minerals and other nutrients to make it even have any claim whatsoever. They take cow's milk and purify it, you know? And so that's somehow an equivalent to mother's, human mother's milk? It's not. <clears throat> it's something different entirely. They have to bolster it. They have to monkey with it, literally. They have to monkey around with it to make it something palatable and uh, somehow, you know, they provide some basic nutrients for the child, but it falls far short. Um, but, you know, not only that, uh, Tom, but it actually does, a, does psychological damage, too, because feeding a child with formula is not the same as actually feeding the child directly, the mother. There's a certain bonding that goes on there that is very, very important. Moms know this. They know this. It's just that when you get moms who are career women, who don't have time to nurse their children because they've got too many more important things to do, that they're sacrificing the child from that. No? Is it hard? I'm sure it is. It is hard. I mean, pregnancy is hard. Childbearing is hard. Uh, giving birth and raising the child is hard. The, certainly, I'd be the last person in the world to minimize that. I'm sure it is. But it's a vocation. That's the whole point of a vocation, to be a mother. And um, I'm afraid the, the reaching for the baby formula was marketed to women as though it would somehow liberate them from the demands of motherhood. Well, it did. And the consequences are very telling. Right? 
So anyway, I mean, the, the shortage of baby formula right now is a microcosm of the much larger picture. It's just one aspect of the much larger picture of the famine that Our Lady predicted would happen to the world because of the sins of mankind. Our Lady predicted that at Fatima. It was one of the things she told to the children at Fatima that um, if people did not stop sinning and offending God, if the world was not consecrated to her immaculate heart, and notably Russia, particularly, were, devo- were, not, devoted to her, were not consecrated to her secular, sacred heart, one of the great consequences would be, together with war and Russia spreading her errors throughout the world, would be famine, famine and disease. So we shouldn't be surprised to find that happening, though. We'd be surprised if it weren't happening right now. But this famine is a planned famine. It is orchestrated. And it is orchestrated by those who want to use the famine to basically um, manipulate the population of the world. We should have uh, taken a hint when Hillary Clinton, some years ago now, uh, actually was warning her friends to begin stockpiling food. That actually made news, curiously enough, right? That Hillary Clinton was warning her friends to stockpile food. Uh, it would have gained our attention when the United Nations has been, the United Nations has been forecasting for over a year now food shortages. We should have paid attention. They know what's coming. Uh, when Joe Biden starts talking about the shortages of food, no matter who he blames it on, again, he's part of the plot, he's on the inside, he knows what's coming. Uh, when the president of Goya Foods, right, the, I guess the CEO, actually, a conservative, well-known conservative, right, his company actually backed Donald Trump at a time when hardly anybody else would, right? And uh, he has come out now and said, we are on the precipice. We are standing at the precipice of a massive food shortage, which is going to take a kind of an iron grip in the latter half of this year. Well, we're almost there. The moral of the story is that we, we have to take the warning and we have to prepare for that in a prudent way. How to do that? That's another question we can't get into right now, but there are those who have some very good advice on how to do, how to prepare for that. Um, Now, you know, I mentioned the name Monsanto before as an example of a company that has really uh, tried very hard to to control uh, produce and crops, notably here in America, but throughout the world too. And Monsanto has produced seeds in their laboratories, which they claim are more or less uh, very powerful in, in guarding against the ravages of, uh, of insects. But if you make something so inorganic that it's not palatable to insects, who else is it not palatable and what have you done to it? You know? And you have genetic uh, modification, right? Uh, to the very DNA of the basically the food supply. They're modifying their seeds, and then they're by their uh, legal departments um, getting all kinds of agreements as to how those seeds can be used, such that uh, planters have to, uh, farmers have to buy their seeds every year and replant them because they will not regenerate. Every new crop has to be re-sown 
by the farmers with Monsanto seeds because they will not regenerate. And they will not generate seeds that can be used for the following year's crop. But they've actually gotten to the point, it's reported, that there are farmers who will not use Monsanto seeds, but the Monsanto crop has actually affected the crops of adjoining farmers. And Monsanto is going after those farmers now because of the effect that their Monsanto modified seeds are having on the adjoining farmers' fields. And charging them, having the audacity to charge them because their, their product is invading other people's fields. Yeah. But when you have legal departments that uh, basically you're paying millions and millions of dollars for, you can afford to do that. That's what they exist for. Protect you against lawsuits no matter how much damage you do and go after others, right? And uh, actually just drive them out of business. This is the problem that we're facing right here. It, is, it really comes down to a matter of socialism in the sense that um, when you have corporate, as we have corporate America, uh, on the one hand, and you have the, the governmental power on the other hand, politicians, when you have them working hand in glove, um, essentially you have a socialist state. Essentially you have where the, the government, when governmental power controls the means of production. And it can happen in, in one of two ways, I guess. You can say, well, when the government overtly seizes control of the means of production, even of the food supply, as it did in the Soviet Union, well, there you have the bringing together of the governmental power controlling the, uh, the very lives of all of its citizens by controlling the things that are produced that they, they depend on to live. But you can also have it go the other way. You can have corporate America buy the politicians. You can have corporate America buy them off thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. You can have them buy elections to have their men elected who will work with them and for them in government to, uh, to empower them to control the people. Either way, you're going to have essentially a socialist society and it's a, it's a totalitarian society. This is what's going to result from it. Um, Our Lady forecast a great deal of this at Fatima. I mean, a lot, much of it is implicit in what she, what she told us there. Um, and the bottom line, Tom, is that we have to realize there are practical things we need to do right now. Notably, we have to try to find other ways, we have to find a way around their control. Okay, we have to find practical ways to get around their control. There are ways to get around their food, their food control, uh, which they've been putting in place for decades now. And as far as the other things our own personal home economy depends on, we have to find ways to uh, supply the things we and our families are going to be needing. Okay, uh, there are, there's a great deal of information available for those who are willing to do their homework, to learn what they can do to be more and more self-sufficient. But <coughs> we have to definitely <coughs> do exactly that. And if we don't, we're going to get it. Excuse me. But uh, we have to not lose the big picture either. And the big picture is 
<clears throat> that these uh, powers that be, the powers, powers of darkness, the powers in high places, they actually were able to gain that power over us because of our sinfulness. When we sinned in Eden, uh, we gave that power to Satan to have that power over us. And the rest of human history is a playing out of that. So when we look at the, uh, you know, the, we can call them what we want, the World Economic Forum, we can call them all these different names of all these different organizations that are allied with this. And they're, they're legion, okay, because there are many. Um, but they all go back to the same thing. Um, they would have no power over us at all, as our Lord said to Pilate, unless it were given them from above. And that power is given them because of our sinfulness. We ourselves have chosen this path. And we ourselves have the path, have, have the prerogative by the grace of God to change that. And we can return to our God and we can honor him and we can uh, uh, recognize the Father, the Son of the Holy Ghost, the one true God. We can recognize our Lord Jesus Christ as the true Son of God and truly um, we can embrace the kingship of Christ as the very purpose of our life, the kingship of our Lord here in the world, his kingship over me, over my family, and throughout the world. That should be our message. It is the only way, but it is real, it is there, and the graces are there to do that. We see the results of prayer already at work, and this is just a reassurance from heaven to let us know that we have that power by, by grace working among us now, to call down the power of God upon us and to have the great restoration of faith and hope and charity and the practice of our traditional Catholic faith. So we have to send the word out to the whole world, and what Catholics believe is just one small way of doing that, of calling people to uh, come back, come to the faith, accept the true traditional Catholic faith, to abandon the great reset of Vatican II, to uh, be restored to the traditional Catholic faith and to dedicate, dedicate their lives um, and the raising of their, their, their children and uh, the future generations also to fidelity to the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to get back to the true Mass, the true sacraments. You've got to be praying the rosary everywhere, every day, that's, that should, the rosary should be our constant companion, and we should be reaching for that every moment we can. Okay. So anyway, I'm going to the floor over to you here. I do, I do heartily, rec heartily recommend, though, that um, <clears throat> people who are in a position to do so begin seriously to find out what they need to do and do it as far as trying to provide for not just a food supply for a day for themselves, but what they can do on an ongoing basis to provide food for themselves and their families. And I do encourage them uh, also to look at other things that, that are necessities for the welfare of their families, to learn how they can provide these things for themselves. Certainly food is a major thing. The faith, the bread of life, our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is actually the most important thing of all. So I ask them to please think in terms not only of the earthly food, but the super substantial bread that uh, our Lord himself has given us 
and continues to give us through the True Mass. Mm -hmm. Father, thank you. Appreciate your time tonight. Oh, certainly, Tom. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.